From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Six Democratic senators are getting behind an effort to add a billion dollars to the Technology Modernization Fund. Senator Chris Van Hollen writes to Senate Appropriations Chairman Richard Shelby, Vice Chairman Patrick Leahy, Financial Services and General Government Subcommittee Chairman John Kennedy, and Ranking Member Chris Coons that the same money the House put into the fund in the HEROES Act should go into the Senate COVID relief package. Senators Cory Booker, Bob Casey, Diane Feinstein, Mark Warner, and Ron Wyden co-signed the letter. Teleworking could save a federal employee up to $4,000 a year, according to a witness at a Senate Environment and Public Works Committee hearing about expanding telework in the federal government after the pandemic. Kate Lister of Global Workplace Analytics told the committee Wednesday the government would benefit, too, from cutting its real estate footprint. GovExec reports an analysis from Lister's firm says if every eligible Fed teleworked half the time, the government could cut its footprint 25%. The top procurement executive at the Department of Homeland Security is asking Congress to let the agency use other transaction authorities permanently. Chief Procurement Officer Soraya Correa tells the Senate Finance Committee the agency has used OTAs extensively for COVID response. FCW reports the agency's authorization to use OTAs expires at the end of every fiscal year. The intelligence community has new principles for ethical artificial intelligence. The principles reflect the authorities and missions of each of the 17 agencies in the IC. Ben Hubner is chief of the Civil Liberties, Privacy and Transparency Office in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Ben, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What was the reason behind putting this all together in the first place? Sure, and thank you for having me. Um, look, I think we all have seen the opportunities of technology um, and some of the unintended consequences. That is certainly true here within the intelligence community as well. We had a leg up. We, we, we teach our folks from literally day one that they need to uh, use all of their resources in an ethical way. But we saw a new need with respect to artificial intelligence. There was something new here. Um, all of that, that data, that's, that's not really new for the intelligence community. We've been doing that for a while. Um, but this artificial intelligence, we have analytics, they're changing all of the time, and we needed to rethink through what our principles were gonna be, when we were gonna use these types of tools, how we were gonna use these types of tools, and how we would present that information to policymakers. The Defense Department has done this same thing, but you said recently that your journey was a little bit different. You said creating a common document for all of them, referring to the 17 organizations in the IC, that's equally applicable, had to be conducted in a different way than DOD could do. How so, Ben? Absolutely. I mean, we, we built on the work of the Department of Defense, which was excellent. Uh, the difference for the intelligence community is we are a, a series of agencies across many different departments. And so while we have um, a common mission, we have different sets of authorities depending. The FBI is a different organization than the CIA. Um, and what we needed was a document that would allow us to talk about what we are doing as a whole while recognizing that our, each of our agencies is going to be doing something a bit different given their differing authorities. And that's what we try to do both with these principles and then with the ethical framework that we also published associated with it. What was involved in kind of that, I guess, inventory taking, for lack of a better term, at understanding what each of these organizations is already doing with artificial intelligence, how they're applying it, and the kinds of things that they want to do at some point in the future with AI? I think, I think the strength of the process that we set up was that it was very ground up. This really started with 
the data scientists in all of those intelligence community elements, as well as their lawyers, their privacy and civil liberties officers, all coming together um, to try to come up with some good practical guidance on how they are going to be implementing artificial intelligence. That made us look at what we had been doing, what we planned on be doing in the future, um, and what would be the tools that would allow us to execute on our mission. You refer rightly to the differences among the 17 organizations in the IC, but I imagine as you did that ground-up review that you just talked about, you found there were a fair amount of similarities as well, weren't there? I think there are, and, and I don't want to say that the intelligence community even as a whole is too different. A lot of the challenges that we have, you will see throughout government, you will see in the private sector as well, right? Um, we are all looking at things like um, voice-to-text, how do we do that type of translation? That has many different applications. Certainly they are here in the intelligence community. We are looking at computer vision, image recognition, how many planes are on that tarmac. Um, that is something that is true both for the intelligence community and for the Department of Defense. So there is certainly a lot of commonality, and we wanted to make sure that we had a common approach to an exercise of reasoned judgment when we apply AI. You made the distinction that I did not make in the introduction to our, our conversation, Ben, about the two products uh, that you're releasing here. Principles of AI ethics for the intelligence community is one. AI ethics framework is another. What's the difference between the two and what, what uh, purpose, what mission does each serve? Absolutely, so the principles are, as you would think, they're the high level principles that we are going to be ethical, that we're going to be accountable, that we will have objective intelligence information that particularly important for the intelligence community that it will be secure and resilient. Um, those principles are very important. We wanted to make sure they are common across the intelligence community, but bluntly, that was the easy part. No one had any disagreement that we were going to be putting out objective intelligence. The real question is how. How are we going to do that using this artificial intelligence technology? And that's the second document. What we wanted to do to have it common and also be transparent with the public is to show the work that we're going to do to get to that objective intelligence. What are the questions that we ask ourselves before we employ AI and on how we employ that AI? Ben, are these living documents, are these things that you will update as time goes on and what would prompt uh, an, an evolutionary process when it comes to either one of these? I think the principles themselves will be pretty stable. We're not gonna walk away from objective intelligence. The ethical framework, we very much um, are going with the approach of versioning it. You know, 1.0 is what we put out to the public last week. We're going to have a 2.0 and a 3.0, and we're going to do that because the technology is going to change. We're going to learn, um, as well as we're going to now, particularly because we put this out to the public, be able to interact more with the public. Um, always a difficult thing for the intelligence community, but a critical one. And learn more, use that to update our framework. We want this to be a practical tool. My goal, our goal within the intelligence community for this ethical framework, it'll be useful if it's tacked to the cubicles all across the intelligence community. Uh, it's not just a piece of paper, it's something that helps us make the decisions that we need to make to protect the nation. Less than a minute left, Ben. You mentioned that these are the same, some of the challenges that you're experiencing in the, in the IC are similar to what other agencies across government are experiencing. What can other agencies take away from the work that you've done here? I hope that they can take away the need first to bring together the right stakeholders, um, to have the technologists, the mission folks, yes, the lawyers and the privacy and civil liberties officers as well, all working together um, to come up with this. And I think the second aspect of it really is to create a document that is going to be practical. If I am a data scientist who needs to start a new project, how am I going to define success? And how am I going to define success in an ethical way? 
That's the kind of guidance that our folks were looking for, and I think that's going to be true throughout government. Ben, thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me. Up next, pro tips for keeping employee morale high. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a hot list to keep your team engaged and happy no matter where they're working. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Federal agencies are releasing back to the office plans to try to get back as to as close to normal as possible. One of the elements of those comeback plans will be gauging employee morale. Angela Cotalesa is program manager at the Center for Leadership Development at the Office of Personnel Management, writing in GovExec about keeping employee morale high. Her views in her column and in this conversation are her own and not those of the agency. Angela, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You've got a, a list here of six things that managers should keep in mind to keep morale up during the coronavirus. Do these apply mostly for managing people away from the office or managing them when they come back to the office or both? I think they apply to both. I think they're just good practices for you know keeping morale high, keeping employees engaged, creating a good culture. But especially now when times are harder than ever, I think the six practices that I wrote about are, are particularly important. One of them you write about is practicing gratitude, and you write, the best leader I ever worked for gave credit and thanks regularly and sincerely. What difference did that make to you as an employee, and what difference does that make to the leaders themselves who practice gratitude in that way? Yeah, so for me, working for that particular leader, there were a couple of things. It was just nice to work for someone who was so kind and who was so appreciative. It really made us want to do even more good work for her. Um, but she was also such a good example for me. I remember just witnessing how she behaved, you know, made me want to be more like her and to be more grateful um, and thankful to people. And, yeah, I mean, I think when you when you create a culture where people see, feel, feel seen and heard and valued, it, it just makes them want to, to do more, more good work. So it's kind of the right thing to do, but also the strategic thing to do. And the thing is, you don't have to even necessarily be doing that to your subordinates. You could do that to your leadership or your peers or your customers, and it always will reach uh, reap a good return. One of the strategies that we talk about on this program not nearly as often as we should is that idea, that idea you just mentioned of managing up, that uh, just about everybody, unless you're the secretary of the organization, you've got to go up the chain as well as down the chain. Is there a difference in your view in managing up versus managing down? That's a good question. Um, you know, when you manage up, I think you've got to be pretty careful, you know, because it's not necessarily part of your official job duties to to manage up, but it is an important element of sort of conveying and convincing and providing information to sway uh, leadership decisions up the chain. And down the chain, it's sort of expected that you'll, you know, provide guidance and that sort of thing. So, you know, we're all human beings. We're all communicating and conveying information to get to one another. Um, and regardless of your position in, in the organization and who you're speaking to, it's important to be cognizant and, and careful about what you say and how you say it and the sort of um, vibe you give off, you know, the way you, you make people feel when they're around you. Another item on your list, Angela, in the GovExec piece is be a storyteller. Why is that important and what do you mean by telling stories? Yeah, you know, a leader operates as part of a larger system and Although a leader may focus on details, sometimes it's always important to keep that bigger picture in mind. And so communicating like where we're at, 
where we're gonna go, why that plan makes sense, why you should get on board with me. It's just so important to help people make sense of, of where you're at and where you're headed. So there's tremendous value in being a good executive storyteller for sure. Another item that you write about is one that includes a word I've heard on this program over the last four or five months more than I ever expected to when this began, and that is the word opportunity. You frame this as seeing challenges as opportunities. How does one change a mindset or worldview that this is a problem that I have to manage through into the idea that you're talking about here and that leaders from Suzette Can on down have talked about this is an opportunity to do something different or do something in a new way or start something we might not have started otherwise, accelerate something or whatever, Angela. Right. I mean, well, if you just think back on your your own experiences in your own life, times when you grew the most, I'm guessing those times when you grew the most as a, a professional, as an individual, are times when you had challenges. So challenges really are an opportunity for us to sharpen ourselves, to get better, to as an organization to provide better services, to get more strategic, to get more efficient. Even um, you know, with great opportunities, or sorry, with great challenges, there are great opportunities. So it's important to be optimistic. It also just feels better by the way you know it doesn't feel very good to be negative and sort of get stuck in that negative state so optimism can reduce stress it can make you healthier it can make you live longer it can make you more successful I mean it's just a strategic thing to do um, and as a leader you can model that but you can also foster the optimism through that strategic storytelling I mentioned a moment ago the last one that we have time to talk about in this conversation Angela is trusting your employees one would think that would be naturally easy for a leader to do, but it's not, is it? It's not always easy to trust your employees, you know, and that old micromanaging thing, um, you know, some people may have a tendency as leaders to micromanage their staff, but it can really backfire, you know. Um, people don't like not being trusted. They don't like being micromanaged. And, you know, it's really kind of old school for a leader to uh, to be, you know, from the top down, whatever they say goes my way or the highway. The new, more modern uh, way of leadership, in my view, is to be a facilitator of a group process, to harness the knowledge in your team towards a common goal. You know, your staff understand problems, so empower them to voice their, their ideas, to identify solutions, and to implement them. Angela, terrific insight. Thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you, Francis. Up next, developing vaccines for infectious diseases. Straight ahead on Government Matters, lessons to learn from the path to the Ebola vaccine. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Two decade research journeys led to a treatment that cuts the death rate from Ebola from 70% of untreated people down to nearly 10% for people who get medicine. Nancy Sullivan has led that journey at the National Institutes of Health. She's chief of the biodefense research section at NIH's Vaccine Research Center, and she's a finalist for a Service to America medal in the science and environment category. Nancy, thanks very much for coming on the program. What did you have to start with when you first started working on Ebola years ago? What did we know and what did you have and what resources did you have to try to work with? Yeah, so we, we didn't know much about how to protect against Ebola. So there had been about 20 years of, of failed attempts to develop a vaccine or, or a treatment. 
And one of the reasons that I came to NIH was because of the tremendous resources and opportunity to address something that might not have a direct profit motive for a company, but that would allow us to do something really important to protect the public health. Was this a story of breakthroughs along the way or steady progress over time or a combination of both or some other path? A combination of both. And so the, the vaccine that I worked on really informed what I did with the treatment. And so by working on the vaccine, I could understand the kinds of immune responses that would be important to protect. And then when I started working on a treatment, I could use that information to really target that treatment to points of vulnerability for, for combating the virus. All right, and the, the phrase you just used there, I think informs my next question, which is a rookie question and I apologize. Is Ebola a virus or is it a family of viruses like some of the other kinds of things that we're reading about, corona and others? Yeah, the family is phyloviruses. So there's Ebola virus, Sudan virus, Marburg virus you might have heard of. So these are viruses that all have a similar genetic structure and cause the same constellation of disease in humans. So they are related, but they're not the same. As your work progressed, what directions did it take? Who were your partners within government? Mm -hmm. Who were your partners outside of government? So that partnership within government is absolutely critical. So the basic scientific discoveries took place in my lab. And then we move outward in collaboration. So the Vaccine Research Center, where I work, um, has a tremendous infrastructure for moving things from basic discovery into the bedside, into the clinic. And so I work very closely with Dr. Julie Ledgerwood, who has conducted all of the clinical trials um, for the Ebola work that I've done. So moving it to that point was the first step, very important. But then we had to manufacture this treatment. And um, we did that again with the VRC because we have a, a small facility to do that. But then when we wanted to make it much bigger to treat lots of patients in Congo, we partnered with DARPA, um, which is another government agency in the Department of Defense. Um, I think they're best known for inventing the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had a very productive collaboration with them to actually make lots of this antibody. It's a monoclonal antibody. A lot of the early work was done in collaboration also with the Department of Defense. Uh, USAMRID is the Infectious Disease um, Institute uh, part of the Army where they actually can test things in monkeys. So it really has been a partnership all the way along both within VRC and outside of VRC to make this uh, come to fruition and be something that can help patients. Your biography on the Partnership of Public Service website says uh, Sullivan's drug is awaiting Food and Drug Administration approval. The drug that's there for approval, what does it do? Does it prevent people from getting Ebola in the first place? Does it um, mitigate the, the uh, uh, problems once uh, someone has it already? What's, what's, what does it treat exactly? It's a treatment for patients who are sick. So once someone is exposed to Ebola virus and becomes sick, this is a treatment that can reverse those symptoms and save lives. So um, you might have heard the term monoclonal antibody. So in humans, our basic defense against lots of viruses is that when we're exposed, we make antibodies. And what we did was we went to a survivor of Ebola 
and found the cells that make those antibodies and found a very specific antibody that is very potent. And we can now with modern molecular biology clone the gene that makes that antibody and make the antibody in the laboratory. And that's called a monoclonal antibody. We just have about a minute left and that sounds remarkably similar to what some of the uh, treatments people are pursuing to try to fight the coronavirus. Is that uh, a fair statement? That's exactly right. Um, what's next? It sounds like you have this one pretty much to the finish line after a, a long period of time. Where do you go from here, Nancy? So we, there are other um, viruses in that family, Sudan virus, as I mentioned, which has caused um, death in Congo. And I think one of the things that's really great about NIH is that we can work in a way to anticipate what the next thing might be. So the coronavirus, um, we made rapid progress in part because other scientists here at NIH, Dr. Barney Graham and Dr. Kazmekia Corbett, um, had been studying coronaviruses for a long time, just as I had been studying Ebola for a long time. And so then when it's a crisis, we can move very rapidly to move things into a therapeutic or a vaccine. And so that's always our work. Our work is always to either improve upon what we've already done or to anticipate the next virus that's going to cross over into humans and, and be a real problem. Nancy Sullivan, congratulations on your selection as a SAMI's finalist. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.